Well, I thought it was really kind of Mike Riccardi to do my introduction on Sunday morning, so now I don't have to do it. So thank you, Mike, wherever you are. He's not here, I guarantee you that. Um, so he introduced on Sunday morning with that excellent sermon, and then Sunday night I came back. And Carl Hargrove had the perfect prayer. And I want to just pray this right now because it's what he said. My daughters are here. Hi, girls. Oh, they surprised me. <laughs> okay. Anyways, Carl Hargrove prayed this, and it's my heart. So bow your heads with me. God, I need you. I need you and your spirit to speak through me. And God, these ladies need you. They need your spirit to speak to them. Be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for allowing me the privilege of coming back. You let me come back. That's awesome. Um, Because I've gotten to really dive into this really thick, deep, theological passage. And my heart and my mind are just exploding with the doctrine. And it really is my prayer that God will encourage you the way that he's encouraged me through this study. And we saw last week, if you remember, that God's word is the great revealer and discerner of whether or not we will enter into God's rest. And we understood that it's both very sad and very dangerous to delay in entering into God's rest through Christ's work. Beginning with this lesson, we will start to understand that God's plan has always pointed to the better high priest. He alone can cleanse the sinful human heart, and then he alone can call us to maturity in our faith. The priesthood of Jesus Christ is essential to every single Christian. It is so important, actually, that the book of Hebrews plums the depth of this subject for five whole chapters, which we get to get into next semester. The fact that Jesus is the one who sits at the right hand of God, always interceding for us, is huge. It's a huge factor in our spiritual rest, and it's an important part of his current work. And he's the only one, the only one who's fit to do the job. In 1978, I was 21 years old. I was fresh out of college, I was newly married, and I was looking for a job. So my friend, Ellen, called me up, and she told me about a position that had opened up at a doctor's office with whom she worked, a doctor with whom she worked. And she called me and she said, I think you're going to be perfect for this job. So I called up the doctor's office and I set up an interview. I arrived at that interview with all the confidence and bravado that my newly earned college degree could give me. And the doctor across the desk from me looked at my job application, and then he looked at me, and he started asking the questions. Do you have any experience running an office? No, I don't. Um, Have you ever done any billing? Well, no, never. How about bookkeeping? Have you done that? No, I haven't done any of it. Okay. Well, with each question, I slunk deeper and deeper and deeper into my chair 
becoming increasingly aware that he was not at all impressed with my degree in child development and family counseling, (laughs) and that I was woefully unqualified for the job for which I had applied. I left that interview as fast as I could, and I was very humbled, but I was a little bit wiser because from then on, I knew I had to read the job description before I applied for a job. Yes, I did not get the job. (laughs) But job descriptions are very important. And today we're going to begin by reading the job description that is given for a very, very important job, the position of priest, and specifically the high priest. Because without understanding the job description, we will never fully understand why Jesus alone could fill it. So open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5, and I will read for us verses 1 through 4. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Excuse me. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So what was the job of the priest? He was to represent the people to God and God to the people. The high priest was the man who was designated as mediator between God and the people. He was the one who offered special sacrifices to atone for the sins of all the people. His job was very, very important, and the Jewish people knew it. Hebrews actually presupposes an understanding of the Old Testament because it is written to Hebrew Christians. Yet for us, I think sometimes the Old Testament priesthood and the sacrificial system can be a bit foreign. So, Today, we're going to focus on five specific roles that are listed in Hebrews chapter 5. The first one is that the priest was selected from among men. Second is the priest represented people in matters related to God. Third is the priest offered gifts and sacrifices for sin. The fourth, the priest must deal gently with the ignorant and the wandering. And the last one, the priest was called by God. Ladies, they had to come from their peers. It could never have been an angel whom God chose to mediate. No, he couldn't have. Because if the priest was going to represent men and women, he had to come from men and women. Numbers 3.12 lays out this very specific qualification when it says, The Lord spoke to Moses and he said, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine. So of the 12 tribes of Israel, the Old Testament priests had to be taken from the tribe of Levi. Numbers 3.10 designates a high priest. And those were also from the tribe of Levi but specifically from the line of Aaron. And these men had a very special position over all of the other priests. They guarded the priesthood. And the Bible refers to 
this high priest in several different ways. Sometimes you hear the Aaronic priesthood. It's also called the priest in Exodus 31, the anointed priest in Leviticus 4, and the chief priest in 2 Chronicles 26. Aaron was the first high priest, according to Leviticus 8, and it tells us that all the high priests that followed him were to be his descendants. This was a position that required a very specific heredity. This inherited position was necessary because obviously these guys are all going to die and they were going to have to be replaced. Although the high priest shared some of the duties with the other priests, he and he alone could enter into the Holy of Holies and only one day a year on the Day of Atonement. And Spurgeon said this about the high priest. He said, the high priest was taken from among men that he might be their fellow and have a fellow feeling with them. No angel entered into the holy place. No angel wore white garments. No angel put on the ephod and the breastplate with the precious stones. It was a man ordained by God who for his brothers pleaded in the presence of Shekinah. God also set them apart to be holy. He represented people in matters of God. And remember, we've learned already that to be near God, one must be holy. Even the priestly garments that Aaron and all the succeeding high priests wore, they were unique, and they set these men apart. Their robes were made of the finest linen fabric, and it had very intricate weavings in it. It had sashes, and it had gold, and it had jewels on it. There was even a bell that was sewn into the hem of the garment so they could hear it ringing as he worked behind the curtain. The jewels were placed next to his heart, and all the 12 tribes' names were engraved on them. He wore a turban with a gold plate on it, which read, Holy to the Lord, according to Exodus 28. This all meant something. The high priest bore the weight of all of Israel on his shoulders and over his heart. And he had a heart for those he represented because he was one of them. And his job was to represent all of the people to God and to offer sacrifices for sin. And this was perhaps the most important job he did. It was certainly the one he did most often. His job title was that he was set apart by God to be holy. But was he holy? No, he wasn't. He was a sinner, but he was counted as holy by God. We know, don't we, that even with all of his fancy clothing, the high priest was the same as everybody else. So he had to first sacrifice for his own sins before being able to offer sacrifice for the sins of others. Leviticus 16 tells us all about that. And these sacrifices were continual because the sin of the people is continual. And his sin was continual. These sacrifices could never take away sin, but they were only made for the forgiveness of particular sins day after day, year after year. This was the main job of the priest. 
Now, these days, I don't think we really understand all of the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. And many of us may wonder why so many animals had to be slaughtered. Why did so much blood have to drip down the altar and pool up on the floor of the tabernacle? But for the Jewish people, it would have been very meaningful. They understood the message, and I have a slide for you, that forgiveness is very costly and that the only acceptable punishment for sin is death and that without the shedding of blood, there was no remission of sin. God had set up this system, and he had designated Israel as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation in Exodus 19. Well, the sacrifice was daily, but there was one day every single year when the high priest passed through the curtain, which separated them from God's presence and into the Holy of Holies. This is the Day of Atonement, and it's what is currently called Yom Kippur. This is still the most holy day for the Jewish people, and it's all about asking God to forgive their sins. It involves sacrifice, confession, and repentance. It occurs one day a year. This year, it was on September 24th, and it lasts for 24 hours. Ironically, I was researching all of this on December 23rd, so there was a plethora of information coming out of Israel. The high priest would first take the blood of the sacrifice through the door and into the outer court of the tabernacle at first and then later on of the temple, and then he would go through another door to the holy place, and then finally through the curtain and into the holy of holies. And Leviticus 16.2 tells us that the holy of holies was where the mercy seat was and that the Lord appeared in the cloud over the mercy seat. The atonement was made at the mercy of and in the presence of the Lord. Now, atonement just means the God-ordained process of making an offering to God to restore fellowship with God. And the high priest was the only one who could ever enter, and he could only do it one day a year. His work involves sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat as a symbol of the atonement for all the people. And this was very, very serious work. And it was so serious that, you know, those bells that were sewn into their hymn, if they stopped ringing the people would all know that the sacrifice had not been accepted by God and God had struck the priest dead. There was no chair inside of this holy of holies because they were under a covenant of works which could never be done. There was no rest in this system. No rest was ever intended to be in this system. But before the priest could do any of this, He had to atone for his own sins by offering a completely different sacrifice. No sacrifice could ever be enough in this system. The people were sinners, the priests were sinners, and the sacrifices were not perfect. So it had to be repeated again and again because sin never stops. He had to deal gently. The weaknesses And the sins of the high priest made him particularly gentle with the people because he actually understood them. He was never too harsh with the people because he would understand that he'd break their spirits. And he couldn't 
be too lenient with the people because he understood the seriousness of sin and the need for forgiveness. In this way, he was really a bit like a parent with their child, always balancing that gentleness with discipline and always in love. The priest was called by God. No one could take this honor for himself. And it was a very high honor. And it was shadowing the highest honor given to Christ. Exodus 28 and number 16 tell us that only God can appoint the high priest. But, ladies, the high priesthood had been corrupted long before Hebrews was ever written. In fact, from 37 B.C. until 4 B.C., Herod the Great had taken upon himself to appoint the high priest. This continued on, and then we see, if you remember, at Jesus' illegal trial, there's a very, very corrupt high priest named Caiaphas, and you can read about him in John 11, verses 49 through 51. Only God can appoint his leaders, and the government has no authority over God's realm. When they do insert themselves, things get messed up. They, they will appoint somebody from high up instead of in, from the, among the people. And instead of representing the people to God in matters of God, they represent people in a way that benefits themselves. God alone chooses his leaders, and without his call, there is no equipping. The Old Testament priests' offerings were a shadow, and Christ's sacrifice was the reality. The Old Testament priests passed away, and Jesus is our priest forever. The priesthood of Jesus Christ is the heart of Hebrews. He is the superior high priest who would forever put those Old Testament priests out of a job. And God declared in 1 Samuel 2, verses 12 through 17, he said, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build for him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. So now that we know a bit about the job description, now we can better understand why Jesus is better. But I really do think it's important to recognize that every single job qualification that was given to the high priest in the Old Testament doesn't match up perfectly because Jesus is better. He's so much better at the job than the priests ever were. And that's why in verse 14 of chapter 4, it calls the Lord the great high priest. So go to chapter 4 and we'll read together 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Jesus was God, and he was from men. He was a God, and he was man, from among men. This is the incarnation of Christ, when God became man. 
John MacArthur says this, the Messiah, who is God, could not be a true high priest unless he were a man. Unless God could feel what men feel and go through, he would have no experiential understanding of those whom he represented. His incarnation made him uniquely gentle and sympathetic. And John Calvin once said, Jesus was fitted to reconcile us to God because he is a man. Christians, ladies, can only go to God because Jesus came to us. Jesus passed through the heavens, according to 414. And I have a slide here, I think. Yep. This is from the Webb Telescope. You know, I had to throw something geeky and spacey in here. But this is awesome. These are wonderful. This is actually a real picture of the heavens. Hebrews 9.24 tells us that Jesus passed into a holy place that was not made with hands. The Old Testament priests passed through three areas to go into the Holy of Holies, and we talked about that. And the third was through the veil that separated God's presence from the people of Israel. But Christ passed through three heavens, which, P.S., he created. Our earthly atmosphere, the heavens or outer space, and then into heaven itself. The heavens, ladies, this, this is the veil that separates us from the holy sanctuary of God. It separates us from the presence of God in heaven. And Paul actually speaks about this in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. This is the heaven that our Savior passed through. And Acts 1-9 tells us exactly how and when it happened. And when he said these things, as they were looking up, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. When Jesus passed through the curtain of these heavens, he sat down at his Father's right hand, which is the place of power as our intercessor. Remember, I loved what Peter Sammons taught us that first week. Back in Acts 7, he brought us back to when Stephen was being stoned. And it says, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Ladies, at that moment, God drew back the curtain so that Stephen could see the glory that's always, always behind him, this veil. And Jesus, the sympathetic high priest that he is, he stood up as he interceded for Stephen with both mercy and grace, and then he welcomed him into his presence. This is the curtain that Jesus alone could pass through. Every high priest from Aaron on was pointing to this moment. Matthew 27, 50 through 51 tells us that at the moment that Jesus gave up his spirit on the cross, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. There is no more curtain separating us from God. Jesus made a way for us to confidently draw near to God so that we, like Stephen, might receive mercy, and grace when we need help. First John 2.1 says, 
we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I mean, this is such a great and life-altering truth. And this is the confession that we hold fast to. He was appointed by God. Jesus was appointed by God, according to Hebrews 5.5. 5. It says, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, you are my son today I have begotten you. Jesus didn't become God's son. He always is. Remember John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was God. And then we know from Colossians 3.10 and many other passages that the son is the creator. The eternal sonship is proclaimed all over scripture. God declared it at his baptism, at the transfiguration, And he declared it again when he took his rightful place at the right hand of God. Right here in this passage, God's proclaiming it again, who Jesus is. He is God's son. And Jesus is better because he's the offspring of God. And that is far superior to being the offspring of Aaron, right? As God's son, Jesus is the same essence as God. They're one. They are eternal. They are divine. And every Aaronic priest died. But Jesus Christ is eternal. And his priesthood is eternal. He didn't become our priest. He has always been priest. And you can look to John 17, verses 1 through 26. And you can read his prayer for his disciples and for all of us who would believe. It's called the high priestly prayer. Because before he was even crucified, before he even went to the cross, he was already interceding for his people. Jesus was tempted, and he suffered, but he never sinned. He faced the temptations that we're faced with. Actually, his temptations were far greater than any temptations that we're faced with because he continually had to make choices and was faced with situations we're never going to face. There's one important exception here. Christ was tempted in all things as we are, according to 4.15, except sin. The sin that comes out of our own sin nature. Because we're all born with a nature that is enslaved to sin, according to Romans 7.25. But Christ has God's nature. I One of my favorite verses is Hebrews 1.1, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And this really completely humbles me. When I think of how Jesus was reviled, he was spit on, he was beaten, he was mocked, and he was tortured, he not only didn't sin, but he didn't even have a sinful thought towards those people. His thoughts and the intentions of his heart were always only mercy, love, forgiveness, so that any who would believe would not face the wrath that he was about to face on our behalf. This is the holy nature of God. This is perfect righteousness and sinlessness. And he's sympathetic to us. His agony was that of a man And he is sympathetic to the agony of men. The sympathy of Jesus is truly unequaled. 
And it isn't just an intellectual sympathy, it's experiential because Jesus has felt our pain. He feels our pain and he can bear gently with us. And that's why Luke 24, 26 says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? He is the better sacrifice. He alone is both the sacrifice and the sacrificer. He's the lamb as well as the priest. Jesus alone could redeem sinners from sin's bondage. He paid the ransom and freed sinners from sin and the penalty that God demanded for sin. His sacrifice is better, and his sacrifice was his own life for our lives. His sacrifice is better because he met all the righteous demands of a holy God. And his the righteous demands that required punishment. <laughs> this is propitiation, ladies. We will not, we who believe, will not face judgment because Jesus was judged in our place. He got our sin and its punishment, and we get his righteousness and his eternal life. It's a pretty good deal. His sacrifice is better because it accomplished reconciliation. This makes it possible for a believer in Christ to be placed placed where that separation from God is gone. And we can now live in a spiritual rest, and we are promised eternal rest in heaven. The divine incarnation was necessary. It was necessary if his sacrifice was going to be accepted by God. He had to be a man in order to be the only priest who could ever offer himself the spotless lamb without blemish. And that's what 1 Peter 1.19 says. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. Ladies, the sacrifice is done. The priestly work of sacrifice is finished. And Jesus proclaimed it on the cross when he said, it is finished. In Isaiah 59, 16, it says, God saw that there was no man, and he wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. This is saying there was no one to stand in the gap, to pray for God's mercy on sinful people. There was no one to plead the case for those who were oppressed. There was no one righteous who could do this. So God sent his own son, and he sacrificed his own son to appease his own wrath. And this, ladies, is where many religions, and specifically the Catholic Church, get it so wrong. There's no need for a priest, a mediator for man and God, We don't need that because we have Jesus. He is the great high priest. There is no need for perpetual sacrifice because the perfect sacrifice has been given. We have Jesus who is the perfect sacrifice. 1 Corinthians 15.4 says the gospel included not only that Jesus Christ died for our sins, but that he was buried. And this signifies the completion of the sacrifice and that he rose again, and this proves that the Father accepted his sacrifice. Christ, as the high priest, completely put the Levitical priests out of a job. 
There's no need for any other mediator. There is no need for any other sacrifice. The sacrifice and the intercession are both essential to the office of high priest. And Jesus fulfilled them both. In the Levitical system, the lamb died, but the priest lived. But Jesus both died and lives. Hebrews 7.27 says that he died once for all who would believe and intercedes for them. Intercession is based upon sacrifice, and Jesus is the better sacrifice and intercessor. And that, ladies, is why we can boldly and confidently draw near the throne of grace. And Ephesians 3.12 says, "In, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. It says in Hebrews 5.7 that he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And this takes us right back to the garden on the night before Jesus died, where Jesus repeatedly cried, Father, if you're willing to save me, nevertheless, your will, not mine. And Mark 14 tells us that he was in agony. He was greatly distressed and he was troubled. It says that his soul was very, very sorrowful, even to death. He fell on the ground praying that the hour might pass from him. And he cried out, Abba, Father. He's crying out, Daddy, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. But yet not what I will, but what you will. And then at Golgotha, on that cross, he willingly took on the punishment for every sin that would ever be committed by all who would believe. And Jesus cried out loudly as that darkness fell on the earth, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Matthew 27, 46. His reverence meant that he was forsaken, that we might be included. Reverence involves a humbling of self and an understanding that it's God who's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-merciful, all-wise, and always in control. It's a willingness to submit to God's will even when it's hard. It is about perhaps not wanting the suffering, but always wanting the will of God. It is a complete confidence that anything is possible with God, and nothing on this earth can touch us without his will. This is reverence for God, and Jesus was heard because of his reverence. So this makes Jesus uniquely sympathetic to us, ladies. He knows exactly what it's like when you want to do God's will, but God's will is going to be hard. What prayer have you cried out again and again? What have you been praying about? Maybe that this trial or this illness, or this situation, or this disability might be taken from you. You want God's will, but you want relief. 
but nothing changes. It may feel like nobody understands. It may feel like no one cares, but Jesus understands. Ladies, he lived it. He experienced it, and he offers us mercy and grace when we need help. If our prayer is answered with a yes, with a no, or with a maybe so, we're always able to find grace to help in our time of need because Jesus is our mediator and our advocate with the Father, and he always prays for us, and he always understands us. This is why Paul could praise God for being our advocate in Romans 8, 34 and 35. He says, who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Nothing can separate us from his love. It wasn't easier for him because he's God. Because as a man, he submitted to the Father even when it was hard and it meant suffering. Hebrews 5.8 says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He didn't move from disobedience to obedience, but he learned obedience through what he suffered and his continual obedience made him perfectly fitted to be our high priest. Because of Jesus, we can now approach the throne with a pure and reconciled heart with reverence and with obedience from the moment of our salvation throughout all of eternity. And that is all because of verse 9, which says, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. F.F. Bruce said, there's surely something appropriate in the fact that salvation, which was procured by the obedience of the Redeemer, should be made available to the obedience of the redeemed. Jesus' sinless, obedient, and sacrificial life made him the perfect sacrifice and the perfect high priest. Well, the last designation that sets Jesus apart from all the other high priests was that he was a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, which we will be exploring. Come back. We're going to Look into that and learn all about that, especially in Hebrews chapter 7. But the author stops short here in explaining the order of Melchizedek because he thinks that it might be a little too meaty for them. They might not understand it, and there's something very important he has to deal with first. Melchizedek actually can be a little bit difficult to understand, right? I remember years ago, I was a cubby leader. And um, in Cubbies, we had Bible Hero Night. And that was when all the little Cubbies would come all dressed up as their favorite Bible character or Bible hero. And one of our sons, you girls will remember this, Adam, he came downstairs that night in his self-chosen costume, which was a white sheet over his head and body. Okay, he came downstairs, and I was really confused. So I asked him, "Um, who are you trying to be? And he said, God. God is my hero. Okay, well, I could not argue with that. So 
I allowed him to stand in front of the group with his sheet pulled over his head amongst all the Daniels and Josephs and Pauls and Marys and Marthas and all those people, all those people. But I can tell you, in the 10 years I worked in Awana, not one time did a child come to Bible Hero Night dressed up as Melchizedek. (laughs) He's obscure, right? He's mysterious, and he's not generally the hero type for small children. The mystery of Mel, I call him Mel, he's what prompts the author to break from Christ's priesthood and give yet another warning to the Hebrews. It's actually, ladies, the perfect place to end this semester as we take a break with the same warnings in our minds. It's time to grow up. And it's time for these believers specifically to grow up. By now, they should have been able to learn those deeper doctrinal truths, but they weren't ready. They were still content with milk like a little baby. And there's something very, very specific that the author sees about them and that informs him that they're immature. And we see it in verse 11. It says they're dull of hearing. They have become lazy and lethargic. They're really okay with just devotional milk. 2 Peter 1.5 tells us to make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and knowledge. Ladies, it takes effort. But they've become apathetic toward Christ, toward the one who is sympathetic to them. They're apathetic, and they're not willing to put in the effort. Christian maturity takes effort. And it takes work. It's not to be attained by lazy, apathetic people, but by those who value it enough to make every effort. Now, we know measurements are important. We track the growth of our little newborns by measuring their weight and their length. And if they're not putting on enough weight or they're not growing enough, this can be cause for concern. And if at the proper time that baby doesn't kind of grow into a desire for food, but still only wants milk, their growth is going to become stunted. And then if there's a child who has been eating meat for a while or solid foods for a while, and then all of a sudden they want only milk, this is an indicator that something's really wrong. And the Hebrew audience is not measuring up. And the author is concerned because something is wrong. They ought to be teaching, but they are not. This is certainly not the only place in Scripture that we are commanded, not suggested, commanded to teach others. 2 Timothy 2.2 says, And what you have learned from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And then there's Deuteronomy 4.9. This says, Take heed and teach what you have learned to your children and to your grandchildren. And then we all love Titus 2, 3, older women. You're to teach the younger women. But what are we to teach them? That which is doctrinally sound, which is covered in the verses, the chapters prior. The Hebrew audience, they knew the law, but they weren't connecting the dots between the Old Testament and the gospel. The law was supposed to be their tutor that led them to Christ. Remember Galatians 3, 23 and 24? And then in Galatians 3, 25, it says, but now that faith has come, we're no, longer, we're no longer under the tutor. These people were still looking to their tutor when they should have been the teachers. 
Spiritual growth occurs when you teach others what you're learning about God. It doesn't have to be a formal type of teaching like I'm doing right now. But ladies, we all have to be teaching somebody. It might be your children or your grandchildren, a family member, maybe a roommate, a friend, or a coworker. How many of you just were bursting with information and you excitedly discussed with somebody this week what you're learning in chapter 5? Because if you did, that's teaching. But the Hebrews were not teaching. And it says that they were drifting backwards. Because, ladies, if you're not progressing, you are regressing. And it says they are doing this and they're not discerning. What is discernment? Sometimes we think it's like a sixth sense. It is not. Tim Challey says that it is knowing what is good and righteous and what is bad and evil, and then having the skill to understand and apply God's word in such a way that you can separate truth from error, right from wrong, and righteousness from evil. The Hebrew believers were lacking discernment, but discernment is an expected part of spiritual growth. And they weren't training their powers of discernment with the constant practice of distinguishing good for evil. Ladies, discernment is grown through practice by applying God's truth to life. 1 John 3.10 says that a child of God is one who practices righteousness. And we live, we know this, we live in a time when right is called wrong and truth is called a lie. Ladies, we have to know what is righteous and what is sin. We have to be discerning. And this is a call for each one of us here today to stop being lazy, to grow up, to learn the deeper doctrinal truths that are found only in God's word, to practice them and to teach others about them. And this message is for all believers. It's for men and it's for women of every nation and of every era. We don't get a pass because we're women. In fact, this analogy is particularly familiar to us women because milk, he uses milk and babies and drinking. Milk is very easy to digest. And it's for babies, it's for children, it's for sick people. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 and 2. He says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you're not ready. Ladies, we know that babies don't understand what's right or wrong. And they don't have the ability yet to discern what's true or false. They don't know what's good for them or bad for them. And just yesterday in line at the grocery store, I saw a little baby grab something off the counter and put it in his mouth while his grandma freaked out. But... They'll put anything in their mouths, won't they? They have no discernment. They need to grow up. The mature Christian is discerning. She knows truth from error because she's diligent to learn the very difficult and the meaty doctrines. And she practices them and she teaches them to others. These people, though, didn't desire me. So what do we do? What do we do if we just don't desire this? 
I'll tell you what you do. You ask God to give you the desire. And that was really a game changer for me personally. When my sister Judy would always talk to me about the Lord, about the Bible, about what she was learning, about what she was teaching that week, she made me want to know God better the way she did. I realized then that there had been things that I probably desired more than I desired Jesus. So you know what I did? I asked God to give me a desire for him and for his word. And ladies, this is an answer. This is a prayer that our high priest and our intercessor is more than pleased to answer. And since that prayer many years ago, I can truthfully say, along with the prophet Jeremiah in 1516, your words were found and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. The desire only grows as you dig deeper and you know Jesus better. Well, what a beautiful place for us to end this semester, isn't it? Because our minds are full of doctrine and our hearts are full of Jesus. We've seen that our Lord Jesus Christ is better. He's better than angels. He's better than the prophets. He's better than Moses. He's our better rest, and he is the better high priest. And as we break this semester, let's let these truths run through our souls and cause us to constantly and confidently go before our sympathetic high priest to receive mercy and grace whenever we need it. Let's be diligent to grow in the word and to teach others what he's taught us as we practice biblical discernment. Ladies, let's keep maturing because this is the job description that's given to every single believer. God's plan has always pointed to the better high priest. He alone can cleanse the sinful human heart and then he alone can call us to spiritual maturity. Jesus is the better high priest, and he alone filled that position. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just go with us and cause your word to change us, cause us to mature in you, convict us, encourage us, and go before us. Lord, may our um, discussion time be wonderful and glorifying to you. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.